Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to episode 23. Navigating the spectrum multilateralism satellite communication and political leadership in the indo-pacific we have had several guests in the previous episode who actually spoke about indo-pacific uh, but we really didn't took a deep dive into this topic uh, but in today's episode we'll be also taking a deep dive into the indo-pacific as well as looking at the region from a much more security aspect as well as from the space industry's uh, perspective too so to without any delays i would like to introduce you to our today's guest dr chaitanya giri hi chaitanya welcome to the podcast munkar it's a pleasure to connect with you and come on this very well organized podcast uh, access hub thanks thank you very much chaitanya likewise uh, it's it's been pleasure to have you as well because i have been you know trying to uh, think when to have you on the podcast uh, but yeah now we have an appreciable amount of audience who will be happy to you know hear to your multidisciplinary perspectives uh, so yeah glad to have you as well on the podcast <laughs> uh, so yeah before taking a deep dive into the subject chaitanya can you tell us a brief overview about your expertise and i know that you know you come from a science background then now you are also working on a lot of strategy management uh, related things uh, you are working on the security aspects as well in the space industry so can you just tell us a briefly about your journey uh, and you know how you ended up in this sector uh, because we also have you know a lot of audience from the universities and the student uh, audience as well so it will be really good to have you know some kind of motivation for them to uh, just have a brief overview of your journey Sure, Omkar. Uh, I have had a long and winding journey uh, spanning across thirteen years now. I've been in this sector. Uh, I started as a, a normal undergraduate, like all of us. Uh, my bachelor's is in chemistry, uh, with particular interest and concentration in analytical chemistry, uh, and thereafter a master's degree in biological physics. Biophysics. Uh, I got both these degrees from University of Mumbai. and thereafter like most of us i have also been interested in space and i was quite you know eagerly seeking opportunities to work on spacecraft instrumentation and quite serendipitously i came across an opportunity at the max planck institute for solar system research which is in gottingen germany uh, and uh, i was lucky to have secured that opportunity so that opportunity was regarding uh, a payload known as cometary sampling and composition experiment this payload was on board the european space agency's rosetta mission it was a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer and being a chemist i was quite well versed with uh, the instrumentation type but here for the first time i was not working on a laboratory in- instrument not a desk instrument but a instrument that has been heavily miniaturized so usually gas chromatography mass spectrometry instruments the tabletop versions are roughly around 50 kilograms uh, they span across 4 4 and 1/2 feet uh, when you use them in laboratories but here we were supposed to send it to a comet a very small comet a comet that was 4 kilometers wide that's it and uh, the miniaturized instrument was around uh, 70 uh, centimeters in length and around 45 centimeters in width and its mass was hardly 4 4 and 1/2 kilograms so a heavily miniaturized uh, uh, version of it a prototype of it was residing in max planck institute 
while the flight instrument was already on its uh, way, it was on route to Comet 67P Churyumo Gerasimenko. So during my PhD, I was uh, given the task of optimizing and calibrating the the flight spare model, which was at the German Institute. While I secured my PhD from University of Nice, Sophia Antipolis, which is now called as the Azure Coast University. Uh, it's in the same city, Nice, south of France, beautiful place. And I was blessed with really good professors. Having worked on space mission gave me a, quite a comprehensive view, not only on the scientific aspects of such missions, but also how international teams cooperate and collaborate with each other, uh, where they, you know, sort of solve their differences, where do they converge when they have similar penchants and likings. So I learned a lot in those five, six years. Thereafter, I moved on for my postdoc uh, on the same mission. By that time, the spacecraft was landing uh, on the comet. Uh, I finished my PhD in uh, two years, 11 months. And uh, finished in September 2014 and uh, the spacecraft was about to land on the comet in November 2014. So so during those that particular year between November, September 2014 and uh, November 2015, I was a postdoc at the same place. We published some fantastic papers out of it. Uh, we discovered uh, quite a few organic molecules on the surface of the comet, which were native to the comet, uh, of which there were four molecules that were never detected before. Uh, and uh, most of the molecules that we I, could identify have a role to play in origin of life uh, here on Earth. Because it is, uh, it is said that life on Earth has emerged not only because of how the Earth is constituted, but uh, the deliveries that has happened via asteroids and comets. Uh, have played an equally important role, especially in a period known as the late heavy bombardment. So this happened somewhere around 4 billion years ago. And that was the time uh, when a lot of geobiologists uh, suggest that life arose on Earth. So cometary exploration brought an immense value. Uh, many of the instruments uh, that were on that mission eventually got spun off. Uh, some of these instruments are right now in their spin-off fashion, are working on, are operational on nuclear submarines. Uh, some of them have gone on to become heritage instruments. So the instrument that I worked on, COSAC, uh, is now the predecessor of another instrument called Mars Organic Molecule Analyzer, uh, which is on board the ExoMars mission of European Space Agency. So a lot of heritage has gone into the industry. Some of it has continued as a space uh, heritage for subsequent missions. So there was a lot to learn. Thereafter, I moved to JAXA, uh, uh, not exactly JAXA, but I was associated with the Earth Life Science Institute at Tokyo Institute of Technology. Yes. And uh, that was an interesting uh, experience where I was able to spend a year in Japan, another year in the US. And uh, in those five, six years in the field, I was able to identify collaborators. So in Japan, I sort of aligned my postdoctoral research with the Hayabusa 2 mission. Whereas in the US, I aligned it with the OSIRIS-REx mission. Now you would ask me what is the commonality between the two missions? Uh, the only common factor is that both are asteroid sample return missions. So, okay. uh, I was working on asteroids, the asteroidal chemistry, especially the refractory parts, the carbon materials that are embedded within uh, any asteroid. So uh, again, that was an exciting experience. It kept me traveling oh, the entire span of two years, made really good friends, published some nice papers. Uh, we were able to identify graphene, graphene, which is of immense importance uh, these days. Uh, it is touted as the next uh, semiconductor material uh, after silicon. So we identified nanoscale graphene in a few meteorites. And uh, that in itself was a great detection for us. And that discovery made news uh, in uh, space media as well as chemistry media. And uh, I finished that tenure in 2018. 
thereafter i have returned to india so i am in india since 2018 uh, beginning of 2018 and i thought that uh, let me now switch gears and move on to policy and strategy analysis and since then i have been working in indian think tanks i have been working with indian academia i am working closely with the government the space agency and uh, i am putting all that i know all that i have learned in the early years and i am still learning for a greater cause and that is the growth of the indian space program amazing it's it's a fabulous journey i would say because it's it's not really easy to jump from one sector to another and as you mentioned about the origin of life so i'd like to pinpoint one thing so i did one brief project during my bachelor's on panspermia theory uh, by taking a reference of lonar crater which is the only uh, i think uh, crater which has you know alkaline water in it uh, it's it's in maharashtra in a nearby city called as aurangabad i think it's nearby latur i would say not exactly aurangabad so it's it's kind of interesting you know uh, how we meet the people from the same background and it's extensive to consume you know your journey and i'm pretty sure the podcast episode that we are going to the topics that we are going to discuss in this episode uh, is going to be much more inspirational motivational for the students as well so yeah thank you yeah so without any delay let's jump into the topic uh, you know regarding the multilateralism firstly so as we have the audience from the space industry uh, possibly you know the space industry audience uh, that we have on the podcast uh, is mainly from the science and technology background so that's the reason i'm asking this a very basic question before taking a full deep dive into the topic like what is multilateralism and why is it important for the space industry yeah i wouldn't want to appear too eclectic and intellectual by defining multilateralism uh, i have been a very you know simple person i have come from a really humble background and the opportunity that i got while i worked on rosetta you know that was my first experience on multilateralism uh, i was working with a europe with the european space agency you know it's a conglomerate of several uh, national space agencies in europe they work in unison they work with each other they identify yes. a cause uh, and i was not only working with the agency but also on a mission that was fairly international so there was not only participation from within europe but also from russia japan china uh, united states canada a uh, few countries in uh, south america africa australia um, so i saw multilateralism for those 5 6 years as i said i then was traveling between the us and japan and being an indian with an indian passport i was doing all that yes. so uh, i have been a beneficiary and i am the biggest champion of multilateralism uh, is what i feel uh, in my heart at least <laughs> i yes. can't <laughs> in any other way but i i i feel for it uh, for the very reason that uh, look uh, based on idealism multilateral multilateralism is the way to go because uh, when it comes to space space is our common human destiny so it, it yes. cannot be dictated by one country or a few capable countries uh, it has to take everybody along uh, with it uh, you know when i started in europe that was the time when here, at least here in india people used to quibble about why do india need to go to the moon why should india go to mars uh, you have toilets to <laughs> you have you have so yes. many liabilities you have so many responsibilities no no this is not the way to go and that is when i started countering the fact that look if you employ space technologies wisely and outside the space sector when it comes to governance if the governance uh, takes care of uh, itself it manages itself well then all these questions need not arise so i started uh, advocating for greater use of uh, space technologies for socio economic applications isro has been doing that for quite some time uh, since its inception but we never initiated space exploration from that point in, uh, point of view 
even if you look at what Vikram Sarabhai had to say, say uh, and those who don't know Vikram Sarabhai, he was uh, he's considered as the uh, the father of the Indian uh, space program. So he was the one who uh, gave it a boost in a big way. So when he was asked to put across a vision and mission statement, uh, he said something like this. Uh, I'm not quoting him precisely, but he said that we do not have the fancy of competing with advanced nation when it comes to space flight and exploration. Uh, whereas uh, when it comes to uh, space applications, India will be second to none in the world. So yes, statement of his rang bell. It resonated with every Indian. And when he made that statement, Indian economy was actually not doing well. But eventually... Uh, and uh, if you look at uh, India today, India is amongst the top five economies of the world. We are heading on to become the third largest economy on the planet. And what he said back then uh, now needs to be amended. I won't say that we should not uh, or we should discard or disregard uh, socioeconomic applications. But what I say is space exploration uh, can be a mechanism through which uh, we can solve a lot of problems here. If we design the missions in the right way, if we design the instruments in the right way. Yes. Uh, uh, so, and, and such understanding, such comprehension would not come by working in one country. You have to have mobility. Um, and I'm, 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 I have always told you in our interactions that I'm very proud that you are pursuing space journalism, being an Indian citizen, sitting in France, you know, uh, yes. the, the insights that you get from sitting somewhere else uh, and sitting on a certain vantage point and offering yes. that analysis to the entire community, you know, that is something that is needed. You know, people like us, you and I, who are into the policy and uh, think tanking and consulting sector, our job is uh, not to run industries, but give these industries the insights from wherever we are sitting. So yes. we are sort of uh, the shamans of uh, this yes. era. We, 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 I won't say gurus because I wouldn't want to yes. neither you and I on a pedestal. Uh, but but we are the shamans and we have a role to play. We are the messengers. Yes. We are the harbingers of uh, certain messages. So yes. um, and such messaging can only happen in the greater global good uh, when we have international connects. And that's why I say uh, space, let it be uh, the area or the arena where countries uh, cooperate and not just compete with each other. Yes, exactly. That's, that's a really great point, as you mentioned. It should be a point of cooperation, sharing the knowledge. Uh, but as we see, like, there have been some, you know, divisions and factions because of, because the terrestrial conflicts are affecting, I think, at the moment. Uh, but on, uh, I think before 2022, ISS was an excellent example of two states, United States and Russia, with no common interest, still cooperating, you know, at the International Space uh, Station. And I think that was one of the solid example, like how space can be, you know, uh, a medium for the nations to cooperate. But unfortunately, of course, after the Russia-Ukraine war, things have not been so great on the international space cooperation level. Uh, but yeah, on the same lines, you know, uh, we'll be taking a look at the Indo-Pacific region. Like the Indo-Pacific region has recently become the highlight in global affairs. So can you give us a brief context of the region, both in terms of geopolitics and satellite communication as well? So, Ungar, Indo-Pacific is not today's uh, phenomenon. It has always been like that. Our nomenclature, our understanding of this region earlier uh, yes. was uh, based on a Western construct. Uh, and when I say Western construct, what I mean is uh, the post-colonial construct. When the colonies had already been liberated, uh, the colonizers went back yes. to uh, fully. Uh, and uh, this is post-Second World War. And the region was left into uh, turmoil and to fend for itself. So you saw a lot of uh, 
colony is getting liberated after the second world war uh, when uh, european economy fell uh, considerably uh, for the wars that it had initiated yes and um, that was the time when uh, west asia was called as middle east uh, india was or the region where we are the indian subcontinent we were called as uh, um, uh, south asia if you go to southeast asia they were for a pretty long time called as the far east oh okay yeah so but was it far east for us in india no it wasn't far east. Yeah. it was much closer to us than what europe is geographically yes. uh, and in terms of also the distances that it takes uh, or the time that it takes to cover the aerial distance for travel so you can reach singapore you can reach vietnam within you know four to five hours from let's say delhi but uh, it takes around seven to eight hours to reach uh, either Paris or uh, London. So, yes. for us, it wasn't uh, far east. But since uh, none of the countries in Asia were economically uh, healthy enough, uh, we couldn't counter that narrative. The rise of China, the rise of India, and yes. the relative stability that has emerged in the ASEAN region. Uh, has been responsible for the change in nomenclature. Uh, yes. And a region that was called as the Asia-Pacific uh, was, you know, later yes. on renamed as Indo-Pacific. Now, that was thanks to the Japanese, um, thanks to Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who put across this construct. Now, why did he do that? Yes. Look, at, look at the 1990s. Japanese economy was uh, among the topmost in the world. It, it still is today, but it yes. reached its peak. It peaked around 1990s. And uh, that was the time when uh, Japan was one of the biggest manufacturers. China wasn't. China was still rising. And it saw uh, the entire trade route. So emerging from Yokohama, port of Yokohama, going into uh, the South China Sea going into the Malacca Straits uh, as very vital for the exports of its uh, manufactured goods. So that at that point in time, electronics was the biggest exports coming uh, from Japan. And it was the biggest exporter of its sort. Yeah. Eventually, uh, China took over uh, because of sound internal policies with some assistance from the United States. And uh, thereafter, uh, the importance of the entire trade route from uh, East China Sea, South China Sea, uh, Malacca Strait, you know, it sort of uh, was reaffirmed because this entire shipping line became important for anybody who was trading goods coming from Asia, East Asia. And yes. the East Asian uh, countries, uh, the oil and gas coming from West Asia also yes. went by route. So this is how the, the shipping routes sort of determined that uh, the, the two oceans, the two big water bodies become very important. The nine degree channel that uh, passes through the Indian Ocean, very close to the Indian waters, uh, yeah. became the biggest shipping uh, lanes of the world. Uh, somehow at some point in time in the past 20 years, it surpassed the transatlantic trade. And yes. India too began realizing that a rising India has to eventually become a manufacturing base. Uh, it can't continue as a trader. It can't continue as an agrarian country or a service provider country. And uh, when India made up its mind, along with Japan, it started uh, changing the nomenclature from Asia-Pacific to Indo-Pacific. So in my understanding, Asia-Pacific and Indo-Pacific are not antithetical to each other they are not opposing terms they are actually the same terms but uh, when when india and japan sees indo pacific it it sees it from the point of view of maritime trade and assistance ex uh, extending assistance to the very many island countries that reside in these two oceans whereas for china and russia who even today insists for the using the term Asia-Pacific, both these countries, remember, are 
uh, are emphasizing on terrestrial trade, which is coming out of the One Belt, One Road initiative of China. And for Russia, hmm. it's the oil and gas that comes from, or the minerals that come from Siberia into uh, Western Europe or oil and gas coming from Siberia uh, or from the five stands into uh, Western Europe via Turkey. So that's the only difference. Otherwise, I don't see any difference between Indo-Pacific and uh, Asia-Pacific. Now, coming to the second element, I'll wind up that part quickly. Uh, see, there are many scattered countries in uh, scattered as islands in the, both these oceans. So their development yes. are quite high. Uh, take, for instance, the French uh, islands in Western Pacific. Uh, they need yes. development. They need assistance every now and then. Uh, the United Nations classify them as small island development states, developing states. They're small islands. They do not have natural resources per se, do not have vast territories uh, that they can exploit uh, yes. or for resources, nor do they have large populations who can offer uh, a, a value to the global economy. But that does not reduce their importance or their significance. And the safety of these countries or the well-being of these countries is very important. Same is the case in the Indian Ocean. Look at Seychelles, Comoros, uh, yes. Madagascar. You had a terrible uh, drought in Madagascar. And the amount of uh, you know assistance that Madagascar needed just a few years ago, two, three years ago, was phenomenal. So despite being a fairly large island state, it couldn't fend for itself. It needed assistance coming in from not only from the West, but uh, I was happy enough to see that India was providing you know a lot of grains, uh, potable water for them to drink, uh, make sure medicines are supplied, and make sure that uh, the internal security within the country does not face turmoil. Uh, then yes. you saw the example of the volcanic eruption in Tonga. Yeah. Very recently, this year, early this yes. year. Tonga was completely disconnected uh, after the eruption and there was no way uh, the world could uh, sort of fathom or connect with uh, the number of lives lost. Uh, we were unable to provide immediate relief and uh, rescue uh, and disaster uh, you know, relief to fellow Tongans. And in such scenarios, and these countries are... They're, they're far and wide. They are deep into the oceans. Yes. Uh, providing them any assistance becomes very difficult and time-consuming, especially in such scenarios when lives are at stake. So, yes. to reach out to these countries, it is very important that whenever a crisis happens, over time, a crisis that gradually happens like droughts of Madagascar or a sudden crisis like the volcanic eruption of Tonga, what we need is... Yes your lines of communications with them. And yes. that's where the role of SATCOM comes into place. Yes. Definitely. I think the point that you mentioned about, you know, giving a full contest to it, I was expecting this answer from you and definitely you, you know, presented it in a really amazing way. Satellite communication, the reason why I would like to tell to audience, why satellite communication, why not terrestrial or fiber? is because erecting a terrestrial infrastructure is way too costly and it can be disrupted on and off again and again uh, due to the, you know the conditions on the island but satellite communications you know it's you just put up a terminal and you get the signal like there is there is no middle wiring or any kind of infrastructure involved in it so that's the reason like satellite communication is the most preferred mode of communication uh, especially in the remote areas and the remote islands as well. So Chaitanya, yeah, uh, proceeding ahead into the topic, I would like to know, I, I mean, you already mentioned the challenges and opportunities. So I would like to know from the political leadership perspective and how does it impact the development and regulation of satellite communication infrastructure in the Indo-Pacific? So Omkar, um, to be very frank, uh... I'll tell you that India for a very long time did not have a vision beyond the Indian Oceans. Uh, as recent as the uh, yes. 2010s, uh, we were told 
that the Indian Navy is a net security provider, net security and assistance provider for the entire Indian Ocean region, right from uh, Simonstown in South Africa, which is the hub of the South African Navy, to Perth in Western Australia. So we was we had somewhat have confined ourselves to the Indian Ocean that we shouldn't be looking beyond that. Uh, but the growing stature, the growing security yes. of India, uh, uh, and when I say security, the maritime trade security, because you know a population like ours, which is manufacturing heavily, has to trade with countries based in Latin America, in South America, Central America, uh, Western Coast yes. of Africa. Uh, we have to trade with, uh, uh, you know, with the, like I said, the island countries uh, in the Pacific. Yes. So, secure these lines of communications or lines of trade, uh, it was imperative for us to look beyond the Indian Ocean. So, Indian Ocean remains to be our, uh, our main area of operations. As well as the security in Indian Ocean also was a great responsibility for ours. Uh, the yes. waters in Western Arabian Sea, uh, somewhere uh, along the coast of Aden, in Yemen, along Djibouti, these were infested with, uh, they were infested with uh, pirates. There was heavy piracy in this in those waters. So yes. the first thing that we did was with uh, friendly countries, was to make sure that the piracy uh, is checked very well, because it was directly yes. affected. Uh, so we got assistance from European navies, uh, the US Navy, which is present in the Indian Ocean. Uh, uh, we got assistance from the uh, navies of the Arab world, uh, as well as Iran to an extent. Uh, and we put a check to uh, piracy there. But thereafter, we sort of uh, expanded our ambits. And thanks to, uh, again, I'll acknowledge uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who set yes. that bowling, and uh, the previous government, uh, that of uh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, gave uh, Shinzo Abe the pedestal. So the thought of Indo-Pacific was made from nowhere but the Indian Parliament. It came from the speech that he made in the Indian Parliament. So I see that event, that small event. Uh, as a major, major turning point in the way India observes the planet. Yes. And uh, what we are trying to do now, you know, 2007, after 2007, what it's been, what, 15 years now, 15, 16 years, we are now at a stage, yes. we are ready to partner with all friendly countries. Uh, and we are also eager to cooperate with countries with whom we do not share as warm relations to make sure yes. that the Pacific remains safe uh, and uh, there's no conflict and contestation and uh, everybody uh, or all countries uh, work with each other uh, in unison and yes. does not lead to any acrimonious situation. So when it comes yes. to SACOM, uh, we have recently expanded our uh, uh, satellite navigation services or build our satellite navigation services if not expanded and uh, we are ready to provide these satnav services uh, in these waters yes secondly, secondly uh, we are also attempting to provide uh, earth observation services so that fishing appears uh, or fishing happens uh, in a in a judicious manner there are countries in our region. There are countries in our region that are uh, sending fishing militias into deep waters, so uh, thousands of kilometers away from their main coastline. So we want yes. to make sure that all island countries uh, uh, and their fishing stock, uh, or no other navy or fishing militias, come to their waters and uh, exploit their resources resources that are attributed to them, resources that are their rights. So uh, yes. we are working with all friends. Um, today, uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi is in France. Uh, he is there celebrating the French uh, Bastille Day. And uh, with the French, 
we have great cooperation. We share common interest in the Indo-Pacific. And likewise, we share common interest with uh, countries of Quad, with uh, countries in the ASEAN region, uh, with countries that are part of the IORA region, uh, IORA Association, Indian Ocean Rim Association. And India has also friendly relations with countries in the Arab world, uh, along the Red Sea, uh, along the Suez Belt, uh, yes. and uh, Eastern Seaboard of Africa. So we really yeah. Uh, yeah. animosity or enemies anywhere, but we are wanting to make sure that a certain order is created and maintained. Yes. I think this is an extensive explanation about uh, the ambition that India has been having since the push that Shinzo Abe gave towards the Quad, like enhancing the cooperation between the countries which which possibly don't have common geopolitical interests or you know didn't have possibly in the past any common interests but are now you know getting closer and cooperating on several issues. So on the same lines, I would like to just also highlight that recently. Uh, three of the Quad members, that is uh, India, Japan, and Australia, they also initiated a thing called as a Resilient Supply Chain Initiative, RSCI, that is called. And I believe uh, currently it is it is actually initiated to counter the Chinese interference in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, primarily, you know, the things that Australia especially faced in the Solomon Islands uh, and you know, depend to cut off the dependence possibly of Australia on China. So, how do you see this landscape evolving, the RSCI landscape evolving, and its implication on the space sector? Like, will resilient supply chain initiative also have some effects on the space and defense supply chain in the Indo-Pacific region? Uh, it will have a great uh, impact. So. There is also something known as the Critical Minerals Initiative that has been created to make sure that whatever export controls that China is implementing. Now, for our audience, uh, I must say that China is blessed with a really good geology. Yes. And uh, it is blessed with tremendous natural resources uh, that it exploits with impunity. Uh, and why I say that is because a lot of these resources that come out of, uh, let's say, Inner Mongolia or uh, the Tarim Basin of China or Tibet uh, would not have been exploited as China has had China been a democracy. So a lot yes. of resources that emerge out of China are coming out uh, with no consideration for the environment or for or for human rights so exploiting critical minerals uh, is actually a dirty game uh, it yes. is not a process and we have all known about it i'm i'm not the first person to speak about it uh, we see that also happening in uh, africa and the lessons that are learned from uh, rare earth mineral exploitations in africa uh, are testimony enough to suggest what could be happening in China because uh, what China does remains shrouded uh, behind the, the great wall that it has created that does not allow us to see uh, what exactly happens when it comes to environment rights or human rights. Yes. Uh, but then again, uh, I must also point to the fact that how far can the world go with consumerism? It is the consumerism yes. Uh, that has come out of uh, the US, the great American dream that they once sold to the world, uh, uh, which is highly consumeristic in nature. Uh, today, if you look at the, the United States or Canada, uh, the per capita emissions are humongous uh, in that region. Uh, yes. Uh, Take for instance, you come from, you live in Europe. You see the quality of public transport in Europe, and see the quality of public transport in North America. Yes. Uh, that that is a given. That gives away a lot. So yeah. people in North America have been quite consumerist in nature, and uh, that consumerism, when it started creating problem in their own lands, 
they exported mining, they exported manufacturing to China. So what is China doing right now? It is not only exploiting its own natural resources for the world, but uh, it is also manufacturing for the world. And not for the world's needs, but for the world's greed, as yes. Mahatma has put out. So, so we are we have become too consumerist. We have become too market type, and this is the reason why uh, rare earth mining or critical minerals exploitation has become a major problem. Uh, what yes. I think is uh, China will continue to hold a stranglehold. Uh, on these supply chains, it has put tremendous export controls on uh, uh, the exports of such minerals. Uh, more recently, just a week or ten days ago, it put an export control on gallium and germanium, which has which are very crucial for uh, manufacturing of uh, high-end electronics. And with such export controls, none of the countries can right now think of replacing or creating new alternative supply chains. Mining in China is cheap because there is environmental disregard or disregard for human rights. But uh, will it be as cheap in Australia? Will it be as cheap in North America? I don't think so. So there will be a tremendous yes. cost to it. So eventually, True. what we compel the world is to look out for uh, cleaner alternatives, even for critical minerals. So yes. one promising thing that is coming on the scene is uh, that uh, sodium, sodium ion battery or potassium ion battery is seen as the successor to lithium ion battery. Uh, sodium and potassium are present almost everywhere. It can be easily, yes. uh, it can be easily extracted from the earth, and it does not cause as great environmental harm as a lithium mining would. So we yes. will have to come out with certain uh, these kind of alternatives. And I am of the belief that uh, in this contestation between United States and its partners with China or with Russia, there is no sane voice coming out of it. I am expecting some yes. sanctions from Europe. I am expecting a greater uh, uh, leadership, thought leadership coming from India Yes, as we face the challenge of uh, you know, curtailed supply chains. So, yes. um, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not uh, sure whether the Quad or the Critical Minerals Initiative will be able to come up with a solution. Uh, you have a China with a complete stranglehold on REEs globally. Yes. Uh, and then you have 13 countries uh, who may not see eye to eye with each other. So, yes. Between the two. Uh, China wins, uh, you know, head on. Yes. Yeah, I believe this allocation of resources and investment, it's something, it, it also needs to have the sustainability perspective embraced within, as you mentioned, like it's a dirty work. Uh, it's not, it's not something that is, you know, very clean uh, because it affects a lot of, it's not, it not only affects the, uh, human health but also the environmental factors also come into the play so with respect to this only what are the potential future trends and developments uh, in multilateral cooperation and political leadership influencing the satellite communication landscape in the indo-pacific like how do you view this whole scenario from your perspective so in the indo-pacific uh, see the indo-pacific is not a environmentally stable zone. Firstly, yes. most of the low-lying islands have been complaining about uh, climate change, rise of seawater levels, and yes. uh, more erratic weather patterns. So, intense storms, uh, and so on and so forth. So, that has been troubling them. And that affects not only their economy, but also their livelihoods. So, it is a major issue that is coming up. So, uh, climate change uh, has become a, a sort of a reason why we need greater SATCOM connectivity with these uh, countries. Number yes. two is that, um, again, many islands are located alongside the Pacific Ring of Fire, which is this yes. belt 
belt of volcanoes and you know highly tectonic uh, tectonically active uh, zone that uh, starts from the andaman nicobar islands of india uh, it passes to yes. indonesia it goes into malaysia philippines up north uh, uh, east of taiwan into japan up north into kamchatka uh, peninsula of russia then it goes into alaska then it go, comes down to british columbia of canada uh, upstate washington california then it goes down south into mexico and then down into south america all the south american countries so ecuador yes. uh, chile and what not so this entire horseshoe region is affected by uh, uh, persistent volcanic activities earthquakes and uh, yes. situation uh, becomes uh, a vital asset uh, when it comes to not only monitoring of disasters but also ensuring that uh, livelihoods that are at stake that are uh, that are at stake they they are sort of saved well in time so disaster mitigation preparedness and management uh, becomes one of the foremost uh, uh, issues uh, that satcom can easily address and when we say disasters uh, we are talking about both uh, geological and geophysical disasters and also climate change related uh, challenges and disasters so yes. uh, the, that is uh, needed again uh, tele education and telemedicine this is something that india has been really proud of uh, it has offered uh, these kind of services to its own people within the country and india is confident that tele education and telemedicine could be also offered to remote islands within the indo pacific now yes. i'm also i'm not only talking about islands i'm talking about the great many uh container ships logistic ships uh, that ply these waters whenever there is an issue wherever there is a conflict whenever there is a breakdown of certain ship ship lanes satcom again will play an important role and uh, yes. there is a word that is quite often used in the indian political uh, scene that word is called antyodaya and antyodaya means uh, benefit of the last person standing reaching out to the last person standing in the queue so uh, satcom could be one of the greatest technological platforms that could benefit uh, both during peace time during conflict time during crisis and even when things are nice and quiet yes definitely i think this is something that uh, we all are looking forward to uh, to have some more developments about uh, satellite communication and as we discussed in the previous questions as well uh, space is one of the intersection point where countries with no common interests can possibly you know collaborate and cooperate because a lot of science is involved in this uh, but of course unfortunately the the terrestrial conflicts are also not now getting involved uh in the space industry which is why there is a rift that we are observing but hopefully let's let's hope for the best uh, for this region where countries like india will be playing a prime role and i think uh, united states also looks towards india as a prime security navigator for the for this region i mean if they really want to uh, possibly cast a wide net uh, india is possibly the only country i mean the only democratic biggest democracy in this region that we can say so i think we are uh, getting to the end of the podcast now and this final question is for the students uh, i mean i know that you know you explained your journey uh, in the beginning of the episode uh, but still i would like to know what message you would like to give to the students stepping into the field of space technology defense and security research studies so ungar i mean that's very nice of you that you are thinking about students and uh, uh, you know asking guests on your post- podcast about uh, their views that they could share for students you know this is very important you know had yes. i gone 15 years late i would have been one of the beneficiaries of uh, your podcast uh, <laughs> back in yes. those days there was no such podcast uh, and uh, there was 
valuable information was difficult to acquire, at least for students. Yes. What I suggest students is keep their eyes and ears open, um, get their basic education sorted from universities and colleges, uh, identify uh, what they really like to do. You know, very important to be passionate about what you are doing, you know, uh, because that passion is one of the key drivers of their commitment to not only their careers, but also to the larger goal that the careers might spin off into. So be open, be uh, keep your eyes and ears open. Always be hands-on. Uh, this is what I see. Uh, you know, in the in these times of podcast and you know YouTube channels and uh, uh, and you know straight away access to writing what's there on your mind in terms of social media posts, Facebook posts, or Twitter posts. It is very easy to profess, but what will give you the authority in the society or in the community is your hands-on expertise so if you have hands-on expertise in certain areas uh, uh like like my friend omkar is a journalist but a yeah. journalist with a scientific background you know we need such kind of people to come up you know a journalist who writes on science works on space uh, but from a science standpoint we need such people yes. so make sure that you have you know uh, transdisciplinary interests uh, where you are being the bridge between two or three domains. And this is how you will uh, heighten your value and your contributions to the uh, community. Uh, and we need more committed people. We need more humble people. Uh, we need people who would, who would be here for a longer run and not for short-term glories. Yes, <laughs> that's true, yeah. And, uh, you know, life will take you far and wide. So that's my message to all the students. Thank you very much, Chaitanya. It's a great message. I hope uh, students take away a lot of uh, key things for their career and for the future as well uh, from this episode. So, yeah, thank you very much again. And we really hope we record some more future episodes again because there were several questions that came up i think especially related to the quad we can possibly create a dedicated episode in the future as the developments go ahead so yeah thank you very much again it was great to have you on the podcast thank you Umkar. i'll definitely join your next podcast thank you for listening to this episode if you find our podcast insightful then please like share and subscribe see you in the next episode Thank you.